Jefferson Morley, a Washington author and veteran journalist whose novelistic nonfiction books explore untold chapters in the history of the American nation. His newest book is Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spy Master, and Watergate. His other books include The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spy Master James Jesus Angleton, and Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott and the Hidden History of the CIA. Jeff was recently the subject of a wonderful profile in New York Magazine, I will link to that in the show notes. I will also link to his excellent substack, JFK Facts. If you have any interest in the JFK assassination, I urge you to subscribe. Jeff has done great work in this field for many years. Even as he knew that this was not the path to great success in his profession, he persisted anyway. As such, he is a guy after my own heart and a guy who definitely deserves our support. Jefferson Morley, it's great to have you back. It's good to be here, Aaron. Let's talk. So we have just gone through a historic uh, anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy uh, this, on November 22nd. Peak JFK. Peak JFK we had. It was. And it was a strange anniversary. I think in the backdrop of it is the fact that uh, his nephew is running for president. And I think that made people kind of pay attention in a different way. The coverage was predictably bad, but it wasn't all bad. What's your take on the way that it was covered this time around? And maybe you can compare it to the 50th. Well, I, you know, I think the major news organizations are a little more open, um, I think, to dissenting views on JFK. There was, there was some sign of that. I got a piece in the Washington Post, you know, saying the CIA was covering up the, uh, the truth. Um, not, you know, not... Uh, terrifically outspoken or, you know, militant piece, but not a view that the Washington Post has, you know, expressed before. Um, Paul Landis, the Secret Service man, got sympathetic coverage from the New York Times and other major outlets for a story that, if it's true, refutes the Warren Commission and at a minimum undermines the whole lone gunman scenario. So there was, you know, there was a little bit more of that. And I do think that Bobby Kennedy talking about it has kept it in the news cycle and, you know, made it relevant. When people called me, they didn't ask me, you know, what do you think about Bobby Kennedy and what he's saying? But I think that he, that was part of what drove the coverage this year was it's in the air. Um, so uh, and then, you know, I also think the fact that there's still so much secrecy. I mean, that's for news organizations, that's still like a legitimate thing. And so that's a big difference between the 50th and the 60th. At the 50th anniversary, that wasn't really, people weren't talking about that. In the 60th anniversary, uh, almost everywhere I went, people said, how many documents are there still withheld? And the answer, 3,648 assassination-related records still have redactions. A friend of mine just sent me one the other day, and this is a very interesting one. This is this is the kind of stuff that's still being withheld. It's a long memo about a, a senior CIA official in an interview <clears throat> talks about the political action program that the CIA launched in Mexico in the 50s to steer the government away from a nationalistic left-wing direction and more towards a middle-of-the-road pro-American direction. And in the memo, this official, John Witten, says this policy was a tremendous success. And then there's like three paragraphs that are totally blacked out. <laughs> and, 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 and they're still blacked out. This is one of the documents that the, the CIA has insisted on continuing secrecy. So even the latest version of this, you know, 50-year-old document released last earlier this year still has, you know, a whole, really a whole page blocked out of and this so this is 
the guts of the relationship between the CIA and the Mexican government in 1963. That's what they can't disclose, you know. And so, have you ever looked into that stuff that was going on in the 50s there in Mexico? Uh, I mean, that was kind of the you know the the prelude to um, our man in Mexico when Scott yeah. doesn't get to Mexico until 1956. But yeah, you know the 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 history of the of the agency there right from from the founding of the agency on from 1947 on, uh, and you know that was always the project of you know kind of guiding that government, which for public opinion reasons because. Mexico has to be, in terms of public opinion, Mexican government has to be at least standing standing up to the United States or being perceived as standing up to the United States, um, while at the same time privately cooperating, you know, as much as possible to get the benefits of, you know, a good relationship with the CIA and the White House. Yeah, you know, um, I. Was, I think it's Peter Dale Scott who's written about this, and the, it's that in, I think it was like maybe 1954, I haven't looked at this in a long time, so uh, but it's around that time, E. Howard Hunt establishes what becomes part of uh, the World Anti-Communist League, but at the time, they I think they called it, they actually called it, and there were ads for this even in, in maybe in newspapers or something, in magazines, they actually called it the Anti-Communist International. <laughs> And that is, I mean, when you think about the anti, they had to change the name, of course, because that's the, the Axis Nazi Alliance. But like, to me, that was the perfect name for it, because that was really what they did. They kind of took all that fascism and they made it into things like the World Anti-Communist League, which would do the exact same thing fascists did, which is murder leftists. Yeah. So I, it's interesting when you say that there's something blacked out about it, because I would guess that it may well contain something about E. Howard Hunt and that network down there. It, additionally, they had a big role in the creation of like the Mexican Drug Agency, which I th or Intelligence Agency slash Drug Enforcement Agency well, uh, the, the, what, as well, right? Um, they didn't have a hand in it. They they co-opted it, um, and by the by the by the late sixties, early nineteen seventies, the DFS had become a very corrupt institution, whereas once it had been kind of one of the most efficient um, Mexican government uh, organizations, it became very corrupt. Um, a lot of drug dealing and uh, dealing in stolen cars from the United States. Um, and eventually was, because of that, was reorganized out of existence. Um, but yeah, that was, that was, what the what the U.S. government nurtured, and when Scott, the chief of the CIA station, one of his agents was Fernando Gutierrez Barrios, who was the head of the DFS for many years, and he was known in Scott's code names as, as I think he was Lee Tempo Four, um, uh, but a regular social visitor at Scott's house. Um, um, and also a very canny guy. Gutierrez Barrios was also very good friends with. Fidel and Raul Castro, and so he was also playing both ends against the middle, um, protecting Cuban interests in, in Mexico. Um, one of the things that the Mexicans established with the Cubans was Mexico would support Cuba internationally, and in return, Cuba would not provide assistance to leftist guerrilla groups inside Mexico. And that was kind of the deal that the Castro brothers and Gutierrez Barrios agreed to that um, Cuba would not aid Mexican revolutionaries the same they, way they would aid uh, you know, revolutionaries in the rest of the hemisphere, because, because they, they did, did want <clears throat> that good relationship with Mexico. That was important to them. Yeah, I think it was Cuba was where uh, Cortez based his, his whole crew <laughs> before they marched in Veracruz you know, and uh, right. took over Mexico City. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's really relevant, but... <laughs> no, it's this wild thing of the geography. I mean, well, uh, yeah, it's very close. I mean, it's all very, it's all the Caribbean, that whole area. This, the slavers at one point, the, the, the southern people, they thought they thought they'd break away from the United States and set up, make that whole area into a slave colony. And they, they don't succeed in that, but like they've never escaped really U.S. domination yeah. at all. Right. Well, the, um, the, uh, the Cubans were just 
you know, coming out of that in the 1950s and the Cuban Revolution vanquished that what had really been in effect for 60 years since the Platinum, you know, where the U.S. government had effective control, you know, legal control over the shape of the Cuban government. So the Cuban Revolution was very popular in Mexico, and that was a big problem for, for both the Mexican government and the CIA. They needed to tamp that down. Um, and make sure. And so this, this, I was, this document that's still, you know, heavily redacted, uh, I think is all, you know, is all about how they did that. And it's, it's relevant to the JFK story because these security arrangements, these, you know, wiretapping intelligence operations, um, were all in effect in, you know, the fall of 1963 when, Lee Harvey Oswald goes to Mexico City and, and, you know, Mexico becomes involved in the JFK story. So, you know, that that's another example of something still significant that's being kept in, uh, shrouded in official secrecy. Yeah, um, let, me, let me ask you about, I want to go back over to some of the points that you raised about the 60th. Paul Landis, I think we yeah. had talked about him briefly for in the last Devil's Chess Club that you were on, but... What do you believe his story? Because I think his story is newsworthy, and I think it definitely is more falsification of the Warren report, but I'm not sure his story is true. But what do you make of it? I mean, you know, I mean, first of all, since he's told the story and he's come out so late, you know, he's changed his mind. The way he behaved is inexplicable for a law enforcement officer. I mean, there's a lot of problems with the story. So what I do is, I mean, I think it's an interesting story, but it's not dispositive. It's not, it's not decisive. You know, what does it tell us? I mean, if it's true, the Warren Commission is not true. You know, the Warren Commission account is not true, um, which there's ample reason to believe that before now. And Landis's story just gives us more reason um, to believe that. And, you know, uh, I spent a lot of time with this guy, Jim Robinault, who wrote this story for Vanity Fair about Landis. And he's a high-powered corporate litigator and also a popular historian. And he vetted the guy and said, you know, I just, I believe him. You know, I spent a lot of time with him. And yes, there's invented memory. And yes, he's told the story different ways. And here's why he told it different ways. And, you know, that was very credible to me. So I think it's a very strong story. And I think it's, you know, it's not like the most decisive, you know, new testimony from a JFK, you know, witness. Um, and so it's interesting that it got as much attention as it did because there's other examples, you know, that were really much stronger. Um, Dr. Robert McClellan, the doctor. That's, I mean, the, the collective testimony of the doctors, in my opinion. I yeah. Don't, no, no. And, and so, what, you know, one of the most important developments was the release of that film, what the doctors saw um, about the, you know, what the doctors at Parkland saw. And they all agreed that Kennedy had been hit by gun. What they saw in the president's wounds indicated he'd been hit by gunfire from two different directions. Um, and they were quite clear about that. And they were also told the story that they were warned to never talk about this, um, which explains why they haven't come, you know, why they didn't come forward for a long time. So that story, the, what the doctors saw, that documentary, that was the most important thing to happen in this season of, you know, in this JFK season. Yeah, that's really something. I mean, the, uh, but I'd read about that stuff. I think, um, James Douglas has a good sort of rundown on that in JFK and the Unspeakable, if I call, recall correctly. People knew about what about that for a long time, and it's it, it's just one of those things that should have well, yeah. And so you know, know like it, it corresponded to the to the video evidence as well. That's just like no, I mean, I don't, I don't. It seems so untenable at this point to be like it, he was shot from behind <laughs> by one guy, um, you know. And the one of the amazing things this is kind of the cognitive dissonance or the the way people think about it. You know, when McClellan died in, in, in 2019, the New York Times obituary didn't quote him saying what he had said repeatedly in, you know, before his death in, in several interviews with doctors in, in, in considerable detail what he saw and what his conclusions were. And 
they didn't put a word of it in there, you know, in the, in the New York Times obituary. And it's like, I'm sure the New York Times obituary writers have heard of this thing called YouTube, you know, and they could have looked it up. <laughs> and, um, and, and so obviously, you know, like something prevented them from stating the obvious facts of what this man believed. And they said, McClellan was able to see the president's wounds very clearly. And that's what they say in, in, the, in, in, the New York, in the obituary of the paper of record. So, so the, the, doc, the documentary is important because it, it pulls it together. Yes, you know, it had been known that this doctor and that doctor had said it, but to have them all saying it all together, that was new to me. I mean, I was familiar with, with uh, Jones and, and McClellan, but the fact that all the other doctors there said the same thing, you know, really strengthens the story. Right. It's, it's pretty amazing. And um, it's, it's good that they did make the film. I mean, yeah, we know about that. We even know that the Bethesda doctors also reported similar things, which begs the question of like, what is going on with that one picture that we see of the back of Kennedy's head, which does not correspond to what anyone else saw. And, and that suggests pretty clearly that this is planted evidence. And when you think that they can do that, (laughs) Then you well, I think that I, th- I you know, I, th- I, I think the, um, the autopsy was controlled. This is the one thing that, that Jim Garrison did that was really good. You know, um, people criticize his investigation, and in a lot of ways, rightly. But at the trial, he brought out the testimony of Dr. Fink and others about how the autopsy was controlled by the military which was something that was never known before. And, and this, what the, what the doctors say, just confirms that all the more, that, that somehow the body, the record of the autopsy, the images of the body were all controlled, you know, starting on the evening of November 22nd to deliver, you know, to not contradict the, official, the emerging official story that one guy had killed the president. You know, and if you think of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, if they were surprised by what happened in Dallas, um, you know, uh, were they ready to go into war footing, you know, to, to, to re- retaliate for a communist conspiracy? Um, you know, maybe not. Maybe, um, Johnson certainly didn't want to be rushed into that decision. And, and Johnson was familiar with the nuclear war planning that was going on. And he makes a comment on, 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 on Air Force One on the on the flight back to Washington, he's looking out the window and he says, the missiles are going to fly. And the question is, was he talking about the Soviet Union sending missiles or was he talking about preemptive retaliation by the U.S.? I think it's probably that, you know, that he was thinking there was a contingency plan in effect that the U.S. would retaliate against um, now he wasn't interested in having a war. He wanted to be a you know he wanted to be FDR. So um, he doesn't take the bait for a war you know against the communists, and he imposes the lone gunman solution, uh, you know, by creating the Warren Commission. Um, but you know that was the context, and so you know maybe the Joint Chiefs thought that they were preserving the peace by you know doctoring the the president's body and 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 sticking to the lone gunman script. Yeah, that seems to be a, a big part of the way that the cover was was affected, was that anyone who would have a, the same kind of people would have a problem like, hey, I, I don't want to be a part of doing something <laughs> bad, like covering up the assassination of the president. These are the same kind of people, which I guess would apply to most people, who don't want to see the world get blown up. And so you can, if you can plausibly or halfway plausibly or one-tenth plausibly explain that to people, then you could get a lot of people to go along. That seems to have happened with Warren. And it seems a convenient way to sort of rationalize some things. I think that may be what the deal is with Ruth Payne. I mean, I think in Ruth Payne, when you think about how she's lying, in my opinion, it's pretty obvious. But then you think of like, she she, may, she in her own mind may actually think that she's serving the greater good. Because it, it, as I understand it, and you might be even more steeped in the minutia of this evidence than me, but it, what, the things that Ruth Payne contributed were things that put Oswald in Mexico City and such. Which were allow, which were, you arguably used to like, cast him as the lone nut and thereby avoid nuclear confrontation with the Russians. I mean, 
that seems to be a very clever part of the whole plot, the way that it did have that nuclear... The, the plotters had the nuclear threat uh, on their side. Right, well, that's the, the... John Newman, I think, was one of the first ones that, that there was this n nuclear bomb planted inside the plot so that if, if anybody wanted to solve the plot, they would run into the threat of nuclear war and, and they would stop. Um, <laughs> Which is the deterrent, as we know. Yeah, and so, um, you know, and, and, and so arguably, uh, you know, I, I wonder about that, but, you know... It's consistent with the evidence you know, uh, that, yeah. that, that those threats were those threats were raised, you know, immediately and used to quash and control the investigation. Look to your mother, oh, can't you see? She really loves you because you are the same. Sleepwalking fathers, breathing tears in a bottle of fire, drowning the throat. So let, let me sure. get back to sure. Paul Landis because I want to I want to suggest something here that is that I think is relevant. There's the way that he finds the bullet in right. the back, and then supposedly he's like, "Well, this is strange. I guess I'm going to wander over to the um, hospital, and I'm just going to get rid of this bullet because I'm just so confused, right. and I just saw my president's brain splattered, and I'm my one job was to stop that from happening. And gosh, what a terrible day! I just got to get rid of this bullet. Okay, well, that's a strange." thing about it and then he doesn't say anything about it for many years now he doesn't say about anything about it for 50 <laughs> 60 years and then he does but he says it in the at, right after the i think that oliver stone's jfk uh, revisited really really demolishes the magic bullet with the chain of custody issue and it raises it makes it appear that the magic bullet was uh somehow inserted into evidence by by actors in the yeah. in the state by state actors that's the inference because it couldn't. People think it couldn't have been in that position. It was found on the wrong stretcher. The chain of custody is all wrong. Now you've got this Landis guy who's like, "Oh no, this is how it happened." But he's a guy who already we know is a good soldier because he didn't say anything for like all these decades. <laughs> and now, in a sense, he is sort of positing a more benign explanation for the problems with the bullet that we see. So is he? What I'm saying is, even if he's lying. To me, or even if he's not telling the truth, which likely we'll never know. But even if he's not telling the truth, the story it 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 still points to more. It's more evidence for conspiracy, even if he's making it up. Because if he's making it up, it's you can kind of suss out why he might be, and he might be doing that under instructions from somebody or not. Who knows? But the, the if he finds his bullet intact in the back, that means that it presumably went into JFK's back through his jacket, through his shirt, and popped out through the same hole. And uh, because it had, would have had to have popped out through the same hole, his shirt was presumably tucked in. It's not, I, I just don't find that very, <laughs> I don't no, find that it, too likely to be what happened. No, it's not very likely. And so, you know, you're left with the possibility that the story isn't true in some, you know, uh, and that, and so you just can't hang a lot on it. That's that's where I leave it. You know, it. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, so so just because it's new and sensational, you know, doesn't mean that it's not problematic. You know, I mean, uh, it's it's it is consistent with what the you know the, the doctor said that there was a non-penetrating wound in the bag, and so you know this idea that the. The bullet went in and popped out, but you know, yeah. How did it? If it went into his skin, how did it get back outside of his jacket and then land where he said it landed? I mean, it. You know, I just. <laughs> I have a. I mean, I have a hard time imagining the physics of a bullet doing what he's. It's it 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 makes about as much sense as the. Yeah, magic no, no, no. Bullet, it's, probably it, a little it, more. It, it's more plausible <laughs> than the magic bullet. Right. So. Um, yeah, but I, you know, I think. It's it's it, one of the reasons people paid attention to it is it's simple, right? He was there. There's yeah. a bullet. You know, yeah. it's like it 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 it, uh, it it boils it down a lot, so that you know. Um, uh, I think that's why people paid attention to it. And then, you know, he seems like a sincere guy. You know, and and the story doesn't make him look good. You know, as a person, so um, it's not exactly like you know. 
uh, a vanity project. Um, it doesn't make him look too terrible. It, it's you uh, depending on how yeah. you look at it. It would have been traumatic and bizarre totally without precedent experience that you couldn't possibly be trained for. I think most people would have a little sympathy for him in right. that position. If his story made sense, according to what is believable in terms of the ballistics and all that, but yeah. that's, uh, um, I guess we'll never, we'll never totally get to the bottom of that one. Most well, likely. I, you know, I, I think the, I think the crime scene is, um, you know, the forensic record is there. There's not that much to be added to it. It's it's hard to change it. It's so I don't think that's where we will get decisive insight into the causes of the assassination from the crime scene evidence. Um, I think that that alone is indicative of something important, though, because the main the main suspect here at this point is the state for people who are objective about it, and at that point, that calls into question inconsistencies with the state's evidence right. anyway. And if the state's evidence itself has served to make the state the lead suspect, then we have to extrapolate <laughs> that they're also the people in control of what evidence we even have in the first place. And so, my God, no wonder this is like, <laughs> this 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 is the thorny problem of the state crimes against democracy is how do you deal with this? That's the, They're the sovereign authority. Now, an, another thing related to this magic bullet issue, did you happen to see the a uh, firm that was hired, uh, maybe Knoll or not industry, something like that. Uh, they and they created a computer recreation of Dealey Plaza, and they showed the trajectory. I mean, they did it pretty well. It looks to be done to scale, and then they show the bullet trajectories, and they just show how they don't line up to the wounds and where Connolly was. It's like if if years ago when they did that Discovery Channel thing with like, I don't know, maybe Dale Myers or something, and it was really r ridiculous, but. It was as if you said about doing that, but did it honestly. Yeah, no, that was. Uh, and, and so they showed that uh, video and it's like, yeah, it's so they try to move Connolly around <laughs> in the scene. And it's, it's comical, but it just shows like it's impossible. Yeah, um, that's a, a very interesting guy. John Orr was a assistant U.S. attorney in Atlanta. Um, I think he prosecuted financial crimes or something like that. But anyway, a, a, a real legal background. And uh, he was the one who kind of organized and bankrolled that project and to do this really accurate. And with these cameras they have now, they, you know, they claim they can get it down to within, you know, a, a millimeter or something of, of, you know, accurate scale. So, um, yeah. So, you know, the way they show, I thought that was very convincing. It just doesn't work, you know? So, uh. And then they, they, the way, the way they move <laughs> Connolly around to try to show where he would have had to have been is even, is even yeah. crazier. So, you know, they censored that video on YouTube and for no, the video, which is only the computer generated thing. And it doesn't even show anything. It says, this is graphic or it may disturb people. There's no audio in it. There's no blood. The, the most that you, the most graphic thing you see is, is for one instant, you see the point where Kennedy's grasping his neck, but you can actually see the whole Zapruder film when they don't do that. So YouTube is still trying to censor these things. I mean, so it, sixty years was it, was it, was it, it? It has a warning on it, or you can't see it. Yeah, what happens is this is what they do if they want to stop a video from getting views because they did the same thing to me with uh, this thing that I produced with Abby Martin and Oliver Stone. And it got a lot of views, and then Oliver Stone tweeted about it. Roger Waters tweeted about it, and they slap one of those warnings on it. It just stops getting any more views. They can basically make it stop getting views because people will not share it. It won't. They have to lo be logged in to uh -huh. watch it. Uh, you have to click through a few things. Like they do that, and there was nothing in it that violated. It said it like violated the r rules or something, and then but they don't delete it. They just sent put it behind that thing. They did the same thing to that JFK video of this, the, the CGI one, uh, but with, which doesn't even have any, any violence, any depiction of violence really, except for a guy holding his neck, but, it, and, but they already show the Zapruder film with his head exploding <laughs> in other places and they don't do it. So they still censor these things. They censor things like just at their whim. It's, it's amazing. So, um, but yeah, the John Orr guy, he was an attorney and then he decided that he would, or he, he had an interest, a long standing interest in the case yeah, I or, and paid to have this, these guys do this. I first met him in the 90s and he sent me an early version. He was trying to do a forensic reconstruction. And so, you know, at that time he was just working off of, you know, photographs and then he found these guys with these cameras and took it to 
this whole different level. So, uh, yeah. um, it is convincing, as you say. So, um, when I talked to them, they hadn't modeled the the front shot yet, um, and I was curious about how that came out because I think Orr had said that he thought that the he, he he didn't think there was a shot from the front. So, uh, I don't. They were not yet ready. This, does he think? But he must not think that now. I mean, when I when I talked to him, which was last summer. Uh, uh, last spring, um, they were not ready to say what their conclusions were about the headshot, only about the single bullet. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, so we'll see. I mean, I guess the single the single bullet is the one that's that lends itself more to that yeah. technique. I mean, I think the the head stuff is then you're getting into. I mean, you get to that whole jet effect thing. It's like the most ridiculous and tedious <laughs> discussion. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine. So I don't know how they. I don't know how they can do that the same way that they did the single bullet theory. The single bullet theory is something to falsify. I mean, that's you can do it because the government says this is right. what happened first. This and this and this, and you can be like, well, look, we put it into the computer and bleep off yeah. loop wrong. Right. <laughs> I'm curious. It'll be interesting to see if people pay more attention to this stuff. I think that they may because of the, as things go down in the U S which I don't see, I see most of these things getting worse. I don't see Gaza turning into something that's a PR victory for the United States in any way, shape or form. Ukraine, the one saving grace right now about what's happening in Gaza uh, is that it's distracting people from Ukraine, which is an even bigger debacle in terms of the scale of it. Although it's not as spectacularly, you know, like infuriating on like a, you know, the deepest level of your humanity. It's like because you don't really see it in the same way. It's my what I'm saying is the way that the U.S. empire is going to seem so incompetent and just sinister. It's going to make people believe a lot more than they would have believed. And in what's past. the what's the uh, is the debacle in, in, in you? What are you talking about? The the, the impasse the you know, the. the I mean, it's, they, they say that it's a stalemate, but it is not a stalemate. It is a, it is a slow-motion route. The Ukrainian average military man, as I understand it, the soldiers are 43 years old. It, I think that they are headed for a total collapse because they're gonna, we can send them weapons, but they're, gonna, they're running out of military-age uh, males. They already are using not military-age males. They're using middle-age uh -huh. males, which, as we know, are not as badass when it comes to fighting because— uh, get older and slower and everything else happens to us all. And, but like, that's why we don't make an army out of 45 year old men. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so, I, the, the degree to which we have screwed that country is going to be so undeniable soon. And I, it, that's going to be a, another big blow to, to us credibility. And so this is where I'd actually see more hope in uh -huh. this. I don't think it's that the research community is just going to pile up enough facts to like no. beat the, the the empire. It's that these things are related. It's like the the empire is is defeating, getting itself defeated because its its ideas are insane about how it wants to rule the world for it. Yeah, and the and the the what what changes is not the new evidence, but the context in which the old evidence is seen. You know, and so it's. Uh, I think that things like, you know, Landis being taken seriously are a reflection of, you know, a wider willingness to question these, you know, these narratives that have proven so, you know, faulty or dubious or, you know, incredible. And, um, uh, and what effect these wars will have on the JFK story, you know, what what effect do they have on the national security agencies, the national security enterprise? That's what's um, that's what's really under strain right now. You know, this uh, running two massive wars, right? Which are both of which are not going to are not going well, and they are problematic. The more you look into the deeper facts behind them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I see it as these things is related in that after World War II and the enormous power of uh, the West and the U.S. And, and these two projects are launched, the U.S. Global Dominance Project and, you know, Z the Zionist uh -huh. entity. And I think both of them are reaching, they, they can't really continue in the same way that they have. But 
they're both steeped in blood and we're at this point where they're not defensible but we're not ready we can't grapple with what what that means and it really is this is a (coughs) amazing kind of kind of frightening exciting time to be alive but it's hard to say where it's going to go because there's no precedent for it i mean except to say that all empires fall well to me the um the the hamas attack resembled the tet offensive um in its psychological impact um and that the whole air of invincibility that the Israelis had is, is, is gone, and in the same way that the invincibility the Americans had in Vietnam is gone. Not that it was real, but the psychological belief in it was real, you know? And uh, that reality's been shattered now. Um, but yeah, you know, can Biden impose peace? You know, it seems like we, we, you know, we're having annexation of the West Bank as we speak, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's just, it, what I think is happening is it's making people look at the actual history more. I mean, they're seeing what's happening because of the internet and, and social media and things. So they, this is why the younger people who are on social media are, I mean, overwhelmingly against Israel and it's making people look back on them and just think, like, by what right did they, uh, you know, ethnically cleanse 700,000 mm-hmm. people in the first place? Like, this, or you look at Ben Gurion's statements where he's saying, like, you know, I'd rather only half of the, the, uh, I, I think this is an old statement of his where, if I remember it correctly, he's saying, like, I, it'd be good if half of the, if only half of them escaped, but they escaped to Palestine instead of England or something, meaning that like the Zionist project was so important that it was worth even losing a bunch of children to, uh, if, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a strange ideology yeah. to put out when you get come down to it. If you're not going to think like, I mean, I think it's Einstein, maybe Einstein said like, we wanted a country for Jews, not a country <laughs> by Jews. And I mean, it just seems like, yeah, that's a little more sensible. Maybe you could try that or at least, go for a two-state thing that's, like, sincere, but never. They, they, it seems the maximalist, eliminationist crowd won out. Yeah, and, 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 and they're still in control, and even in their, their humiliation and their defeat, you know, they continue to be ever more maximalist, you know? Uh, the fact that, you know, they always refer to Judea and Samaria, you know, um, and uh, uh, with U.S. correspondence, have you noticed that? Yeah, it's some, it's very strange. It's uh, strange biblical <clears throat> things right. that they well, have going on. And there really is like an eschatological aspect of it that they actually milk when they can. I mean, if the the John uh-huh. Hagee guy or whatever. I mean, it's a it's a strange thing. Let me let me get this back okay, to sure. the JFK and Israel because you've done actually work on this that I think people that listen to this would be interested in in hearing you sort of summarize. You looked into Angleton and his efforts in uh, helping Israel basically circumvent nonproliferation rules and, right. and agreements and such. Um, what 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 impact did uh, do you think that that may have had on? anything related to Dallas. I mean, do you think that this, uh, I never have subscribed at all to Israel being in charge of what happened because I think that's kind of ludicrous and that betrays a certain tendency. If you think that based on the evidence that we don't have, but it it is noticeable that they take a big shift pro Israel under Johnson is a huge shift. You go from basically, Hey, we're going to, we're thinking about not this relationship is going to be reevaluated. If you don't let us inspect Demona to Johnson ignoring the nuclear issue and saying, oh, yeah, it's okay that you attacked our ship in the Mediterranean. That's that's fine. We're not, we'll cover that up for you. I mean, what, what do well, you make of that? On the first question, you know, is there any reason to connect Israel or, you know, Israeli security, Mossad, to Dallas? You know, I don't see it. I mean, 
yes, there was a there was a striking policy change. Kennedy was playing hardball uh, in a way that was very upsetting to, to the Israelis, and actually contributed to a change in the Israeli government in in, in 1963. Um, but you know, does how does that connect with you know Oswald and you know all of that? I don't, I just don't I don't see a connection. It to me it seems much more plausible that, um, you know, uh, whatever crisis that was for the Israelis, that sense of crisis was not as great as the sense of crisis felt by, you know, Cubans alienated by JFK's Cuba policy. I mean, they were, you know, they were beyond disturbed. They were enraged and humiliated and, um, uh, and bitter and uh, 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 vocal about it. Um, you know, yes, the Israelis were upset, but they were not in the psycholo same psychological state as the others. So, you know, I mean, with intelligence agencies, you can't rule anything out. But it's to me, it just seems like, you know, it's it's very highly speculative. I mean, the fact that one caveat, you know, the fact that Angleton was so close to Israel and Angleton controlled the Oswald file, I mean... That's about as much as you could say about, you know, is there a connection? Because um, both those things are true. Angleton was very pro-Israel, guarding their interests in the, you know, in the, inside the CIA and in the interagency, you know, debates. Um, and, uh, and he had control of the, of the Oswald file and was paying close attention to Oswald. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I operationally, I wouldn't think it would be that they they certainly couldn't have been in the driver's seat with that. However, because when you look at everything that was involved with it, uh, however, um, the way that the U.S. the the problem is that the U.S. Ha does it even more so as we go on throughout the history of the Cold War. But they just have this uh, sort of standard operating procedure of creating these supranational or inter international entities that could be used to be, you know, cutouts of cutouts of cutouts. I mean, you're familiar with this. And so a lot of times allied satellite state, client state intelligence agencies, sometimes they even create the intelligence agencies like the Brazilian one, the Savant, uh -huh. the U.S. created that too. So, I mean, they use or, or the looking at Epstein, Epstein seems to be Epstein, Maxwell, they seem to be you Western intelligence assets, but also Israel like the or the way that they farm out spying uh -huh. the five eyes. You know uh, the the Commonwealth. I mean, that in that way, it's there could have been they could have used some assets and understanding mm -hmm. the sort of under right. synchronicity of influence of uh, interest or the. But I, I that the only area that seems more provocative to me is the potential that perhaps uh, Ruby was Ruby and his connections to the mob and such and the underworld. If Israel could have played any role there, that's plausible. But that's you know what do you what do you say about that? He made strange statements about about Israel when and about Jews when he was after he'd been arrested. It's a bizarre. Yeah, thing. and you know they seem pretty incoherent, and you can't tell was the guy nuts or is he feigning being nuts? Um, you know, it became a yeah. it became a way of explaining all of his actions. Um, uh, but you know, in terms of you know like usable information i don't i i just don't see it yeah yeah i don't i wouldn't i don't either go very far with either of those now you write a bit about mexico city because you wrote a book on yeah. win scott and uh then you've looked into his comings and goings in mexico yeah. city also the way that they handled his visit to mexico city and so on do you think that oswald went to mexico city or what 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 do you make of that evidence because i'll I have looked at it, and it's been a while since I've looked at it in depth because I have to be <laughs> smart with my time, and I can't go because it's so bizarre and baffling what the what they say happened and the timeline of it and the Sylvia Odia incident at the same time, and the he was impersonated in Mexico City, but that doesn't mean he couldn't have been there. Also, what do you? What are your takeaways from this after looking at it for, I, a, for a long I, time? I think the preponderance of evidence between. Uh, you know, people who saw him on the bus and at the hotel and at the different, you know, 
diplomatic offices. I think he was there. I think he was impersonated. I think he was, he was, um, you know, he, he, wait, wait, you think he was there or an, or an impersonator was there, or you think that he both was there? Yes, I think he was there and he was impersonated. One, one of the, one of the CIA operations, we have records of CIA impersonation operations in Mexico city. And this is what they would do. Somebody would call the, the Cuban consulate and say, I'm an American and, you know, I support you guys and I want to, you know, help you. And this happened one time with a guy who wanted to sell them guns. And so the CIA, the Cubans told the guy to get laws. The CIA overhears the conversation on the phone. So they call the guy back and they say, we're from the Cuban embassy, but we don't want to talk on that phone. Could you come and meet us and, and tell us what you're interested in? And so they go posing as Cuban embassy employees to meet with the Castro supporter and they gathered a bunch of information about him and sent it to the FBI and the guy was prosecuted. So, you know, so they impersonate people in order to, you know, to, 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 to gain intelligence. And so something like that was going on with Oswald. Angleton was very interested in the Cuban consulate in Mexico City. And we have a paper that he wrote about it, about how the Cubans used it. And it was very accurate <clears throat> that the Cubans didn't stamp your passport coming and going. And that way, Americans could go to Cuba undetected. And that was of deep concern to the CIA, because obviously the, the Cubans could then send people into the United States undetected. Um, and so Angleton was watching that Cuban consulate, and I think they wanted to know, could somebody go there and get into, the, get into Cuba you know, via the United States? And that's exactly, after Angleton had identified the problem, then Angleton walked into the consulate and, and was a test of the problem. You know, could could an American get through? And he could not. So I think that was the the ostensible mission of what was going on. Now, the people who were running that, did they know about an assassination plot? I, you know, I wouldn't assume so. I thought, you know, they were messing around with Oswald for, you know, some COINTELPRO type purposes. Maybe somebody knew that there was an assassination plot, but other people working on it would, would have thought, you know, we're trying to undermine the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, uh, which had been identified as a subversive organization. So that was a legitimate national security target in the eyes of the FBI and the CIA. So people thought, <clears throat> would have thought <clears throat> this Oswald business was just part of that, was harassing, disrupting leftists. You know, and then it took a sinister turn on November 22nd. But so, yes, they were messing around with Oswald in Mexico City, but I, th I, I think he was there. I mean, when Scott believed that he was there, um, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people thought he was there. So, yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, what you're, there are people who I, who described, as you say, somebody like Oswald, and there are people who describe somebody totally different. There's the picture, which we, the mystery man or whatever, which we don't know who that is, but wasn't it also didn't um, the woman at the consulate, uh, the Cuban Sylvia consulate. Sylvia Duran. I was right, thinking right. Sylvia Odio is the other one, right? So I was thinking Sylvia, but then I was like, Sylvia, no, not Sylvia. But yeah, that is. They have the same name. So she didn't she describe a blonde? Yeah, she's, she yeah she said that um, uh, that the person who she wasn't sure that the person who she dealt with was. But you know, <clears throat> Oswald went out and came back with a with a photograph of himself, and uh, so you know. So did the imposter come with a photograph of the real Oswald and put it in there? I mean, you know, I mean, that could explain, you know, that how he was imposter. But but um, Asquay, the, the 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 consular officer who he met with was sure that that was um, that that was the Dallas Oswald who he talked to. So. Um, you know, there's just a lot of conflicting evidence. At the end of the day, you just have to sift it. And I just thought, for the most part, I think most of the evidence indicates he was there. Um, so. Yeah, I would really like to make a, if I had a whole lot of time to do it, I would make a timeline of what, what just to map it out of my own mind and maybe make it useful for other people. Well, I did try that. To, I, 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 I did that because... for, for our man in Mexico and tried to, you know, get it down to almost minute by minute. Um, and then, you know, uh, but there's some things that can't be reconciled, you know. And so, 
then you have to kind of weigh the evidence and it gets a little more subjective. Right. So you also had written about the newer developments with things that were have been declassified or that you've spoken to people who have seen some of the things that uh -huh. are declassified. How much did that come up in your interviews and such around the 60th? Because I think those are... That's a it, that's happened in the last year, I guess, mostly, right? And that's it's pretty fascinating. Where does all that stand now? Is the um, update you know, on that? Uh, we had three significant stories in JFK facts this year. Four, really four, but um, three of them concerned this the surveillance of Oswald, the male surveillance of Oswald, um, the opening of the letter. Um, of his letters and a memo that surfaced last spring about that, re revealing the name of Reuben Efron, the guy who worked for Angleton, also Israeli, um, by the way, uh, who was opening Oswald's mail. Um, and then um, I did a story about the four CIA assets who were in the New Orleans courtroom, eyeballing Oswald, you know, face to face in August 1963. And then in September 63, I, I found the son of the woman who was taking the pictures of visitors to the Soviet embassy, um, Andres Goyenachia. And he said his mother, who was in charge of that photo surveillance base and took the pictures and wrote the reports, he said his mother told him that she had taken pictures of Oswald coming and going, and that when she saw Oswald on TV, she was quite sure of it. So... You know, that's a testimony to how closely Oswald was watched. And what Andres said and what his mother, what his parents said was one thing that convinced him that his mother's story was true was if he, if she hadn't taken the picture of Oswald, she would have lost her job because that was the, the, the key to the job was to get every single person, non-Russian person who walked in and out of that building. And so if she had missed Oswald when the time came, hey, we need a, what's the story? Who was here? You know, um, if she didn't have, if she hadn't taken the picture, she would have been in trouble. So what her story tells us also is that that story of the Mexico City mystery man, that was a ruse. That was designed to obscure the fact that they did have a picture. And it's pretty clear that Wynne Scott and Ann Goodpasture, his deputy, introduced that photo into the record knowing that they had a photo of the real Oswald, and Scott didn't want to, you know, didn't want to share it in the aftermath of the assassination. Um, he did have a copy, apparently, and Ann Goodpasture said that, that he had squirreled it away in his safe, and all the material in that safe was seized by Angleton in 1971. So, so you know... <laughs> He's yeah. like the grave robber yeah. of yeah. Langley. So, I mean, so the, you know, that was a very important mission for Angleton to, you know, kind of scoop up all of that evidence that Winscott had that was contrary to the official story. You know, I think I told you this before, and you were incredulous because he had told you something different. But Peter Dale Scott said that years ago, maybe in the 70s, when Scott's son said that he thought his father went into the hospital with a broken arm and that he thought that they poisoned him or killed him. And then that he asked him about this, that years later, he told a totally different story. Well, I, I so. I mean, do you think that, what do you think it's possible that Scott was, I mean, the son thought so at one point, apparently, and, and then apparently thought that he better change no, his story. No, no, no. I don't even know what. Peter, I mean, Michael Scott, Wynn's son, held open the possibility that his son, but he said he didn't know. What he said was that yeah. um, Tom Mann, who had been the U.S. ambassador uh, there while Scott was station chief, when Scott died, Tom Mann told a friend, oh, they finally got to win, too, with the implication that Wynn had been killed. Um, and Tom Mann was a U.S. ambassador, you know, very straight arrow, you know, kind of LBJ protege, um, uh, um, not someone to go off the reservation. And that also George Monroe, uh, who had worked in this station, former FBI agent, 
very close to Winscott, um, he had said uh, the same thing, that, when, that, that Scott had been killed. When I wrote Our Man in Mexico, I discounted those stories. If I had to do it again, I would have included them, because I think it, it was more possible than I thought at the time. Uh, uh, I felt like I couldn't confirm it at the time, and I think that was not really true to the situation. If, if Tom Mann said that, I, I should have quoted him saying that, because it's significant. Um, so I've I've taken a slightly darker view of it now than I did before. You know, I think it's I think it is possible that Winscott was killed. I didn't take that possibility seriously before. Well, I think that for most of us, unless we start off at like with che, at Che Guevara point or something, that seems to be the <laughs> trend as we look more into these things as things that you would have thought not right. that, that couldn't have that they actually may. I mean, Bill Colby, for example, I think that he yeah. was killed before. And then people try to say why. And I think it's like with Kennedy, it's kind of overdetermined the reasons. If you think about the time he was killed and everything else, like they will. Or Frank Olson, he was a CIA employee. I mean, lower level, but still, if they'd kill the director, <laughs> they'd kill the president. Nobody's uh, safe. Well, yeah. And I, uh, I've grown more skeptical about that. Colby's story, too. Um, I'm talking to somebody very high in the Foreign Service, and he said, not based on any evidence, but just based on his sense of how things work, um, he was sure that Colby had been killed by his enemies. And this is, for, you know, somebody from the heart of the U.S., you know, power establishment. So uh, was not somebody who was off the reservation in any way. I mean, in a generic sense, I think that you can look at the fact that he was a person who seemed to actually have a shred of humanity left in him, uh, even after his years at the CIA, that he probably really believed in the Cold War and that in some ways that it was a higher cause, but that like he didn't totally abandon his morality. He like helped Doug Valentine with the Phoenix program. <laughs> Yeah, no. He sort of he spoke on this documentary about the the Franklin scandal and about sexual blackmail and in ways that were surprisingly candid. And around ninety five or ninety six is when I think it was decided that they were going to really go for control of Eurasia. You know, Brzezinski writes that book and everything. They start using these assets like Al Qaeda people in in Bosnia and everywhere else. And he and Colby ran Gladio in some ways. I mean, he helped to establish mm -hmm. those networks. He he probably was shocked by those. I think that they could have feared that he that he, that that he may have he would have been a wild card for them as they go into this new stage that we went into in the 21st century. And you have him back there, some guy who has a lot of secrets and seems to have some conscience. I mean, I wonder if that was why, or if it was something much more specific, uh, which of course we can only guess. Yeah, don't know. Um, uh, but I, I'm taking a second look at it. I'm. I'm uh... Are you thinking there's no, going to be an just, article, uh, or would you ever think about writing a no, book I'd, on Colby? I'd just like to, I'd like to understand his final days, a little, you know, better, like what actually was discovered, and you know. There's one article on it written by a ex, one of his former people, I think, that worked with him in the Phoenix program, maybe. Uh, and it's it's weird because he basically shows that it was a conspiracy, but then he comes up with some theory that is not the state that does it. It's you know, it's. It's vintage, uh, uh, the double think, I think. I mean, you just can't, you can't go where, he lays out a case that points one way and then uh -huh. because of his own, because he, he's interested in looking at the facts, but then he can't go to where where, where, where the evidence would take him because there's a, right. a barrier. It's so, it's a, it's a, it's almost yeah. poetic that way. He's, he's American. Yes. He's the United uh -huh. States. So. so where do you, what do you, what do you see happening with the, there's going to be a new administration, and it's it's likely not to be Biden. I heard that Trump, that before Trump came to office, he was interested in, had spoken to some people about trying to reopen the JFK case, and he sort of explored some things or or had people out there acting on his behalf. But then he he backs off that once he's in office, and he's made statements about, yes, oh, if you yeah, knew what yeah. I, if you saw what I right. knew, you'd be shocked. I mean, somebody high up told Tucker Carlson apparently that this it was explosive yeah, okay, information. I mean, it seems it's Matt, very you know strange what? the way that I, I I don't think so, Aaron. I mean, 
You think Tucker was was not? I think Tucker's source that? was Pompeo, um, and and yeah, and, 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 and Pompeo right. has to justify the fact that when they took the JFK files to Trump, Pompeo argued for keeping them secret. Because Pompeo was trying to install himself at CIA and trying to, you know, win over the leadership group there. And so he didn't want to piss them off by demanding their JFK files. He wanted to ingratiate himself. And so in a transactional way, he got Trump to sign off on this. And Trump, you know, wasn't thinking, you know, six inches beyond his nose. Pompeo needed something. CIA needs something. Okay, boys, you know. Put out a you know put out a tweet that has a bunch of lies in it and you know the whole thing's taken care of. We're on on to the next thing. So I don't think that uh, Tucker Carlson's source was real. I asked Tucker personally. I said, "Who's the source? Share the source off the record, and I'll confirm it." He said, "Oh no, I can't do it." Okay, you know, so the story can't be confirmed. Now Trump said, "Oh yeah, if if you knew what I saw, you know, you wouldn't do it either." Well. I mean, if what Trump is saying is true, then, you know, he threw his lot in with the deep state, you know, and like, does he want us to believe that? I don't believe that. I don't think he saw any documents. Trump wouldn't know what to ask for. Um, so I think it's I, I, I mean, I have a hard time just imagining Trump with a stack of really <laughs> complex documents. And he's like, now I will read these. And I will put this information into my powerful <laughs> no, brain. No, it's, I mean, absurd. Just, it's absurd. It's absurd. It's absurd. Clownish. So, so, you know, I think that's just bluster on his part to, to rationalize because, you know, uh, how does he explain that to his supporters, you know, um, that he, he basically gave them everything they wanted. Um, and so he needs, a, he needs something to, you know, make that go away. So I don't put any stock in those two stories. I just don't. There's nothing. You know, I mean— <clears throat> Try not to lean too hard on the Paul Landis story. On the Tucker Carlson story, you can't lean on it at all. There's nothing there, you know? So, um, yeah. So, you know, I guess you're asking what happens in the next administration? Well, you know, if President Bobby Kennedy will probably do the right thing, um, Biden will continue the status quo. Uh, and Trump, I don't know. I mean, Trump's going to be a wrecking crew if he goes in there, um, and but he's probably got higher priorities than JFK. You know, maybe just to harass and disorganize his opponents, he would do something uh, if elected. But I think if he's elected, you know, what happens with the JFK files is not a very important question. <laughs> I mean, all of these— Trump or Biden would seem to be a disaster either way, or another Biden, but a younger, more high-functioning Biden. I just, I feel that we don't need another four years to give the people who run the empire chances to think of schemes <laughs> to keep it going, because given how precarious it is, I think those schemes would be crazier and crazier and could lead to nuclear war or some other catastrophe that we don't even imagine, uh. because... It seems that their prime directive, that which cannot be disavowed no matter what, which is U.S. global dominance forever, is clearly not tenable. And that was what all that was the whole that was what it came down to. It wasn't the Cold War. It wasn't <laughs> bin Laden. That's always that's the one straight line. And that is line is 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 coming is coming to a, a uh -huh. an end point. What 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 do they do with that? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I guess it's appeal to heaven, I guess. I don't expect you to know any more than I do, but this is really, this is really quite a time. And that's where I feel both optimism and fear. It's yes. quite a strange thing. Where, where can people find your work? Why don't we talk about uh, JFK? So, yeah, uh, I do my JFK reporting at uh, the JFK Facts subscription newsletter on Substack, um, which you can get for the low price of $5 a month. And you get tons of all JFK developments are reported there and new developments, you know, like some of the stories I've talked about here, the surveillance of Oswald, um, are, were first reported on JFK Facts. And I think, you know, while peak JFK is over, there's going to be lots of, of news coming on the JFK story. I, I could tell... Some of the podcasts I did are not going to air in, in, until coming weeks. The Rob Reiner's podcast is going to be going. The 
uh, Four Died Trying podcast is an ongoing uh, uh, revelation. Yeah, film, film series. series but yeah. Um, so uh, the Mary Farrell Foundation lawsuit against the National Archives and the Biden administration for JFK files is going to come to oral arguments in January. So a lot's going to happen. Um, and uh, JFK Facts is a if you're interested in the subject, JFK Facts is the place to to keep up with it. Yeah, I will um, make this a public episode, and maybe that will a few people will listen to it and hopefully subscribe to JFK Facts because I think you are uh, one of the most. There's like really only <laughs> you and Jim Diagenio are in the are out there prolifically putting so much stuff out and vetting it, so <laughs> other people don't have to because it's quite a slog to, to look into oh. this material sometimes. So I I do think people should subscribe to that, and uh, it's great that you're out there doing it because uh, I. I uh, you, this is an effort that could potentially, with the bigger issue of just tell the truth, tell the truth about the state, the empire, and then let us yeah. somehow suss it out. And this is an important, yeah. this thank is important you. work. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, for joining us, and uh, I hope I will be there soon. Thanks to Dana Chavaria for producing this episode, and thanks to Mock Orange for the music. Please do check out Jeff Morley's excellent Substack, JFK Facts, which I will link to in the show notes. And if you're not already a subscriber to American Exception and you want to learn more about the hidden history of the U.S. and the clandestine state, please consider subscribing to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. We have a whole lot of material covering many suppressed historical episodes from the world's most powerful empire. It can be grim material, but that's why we're out here, minding the darkness. <laughs> <laughs>